Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Rabbi Mendel Castell. Rabbi Castell is the CEO and rabbi of Jewish House Crisis Center and has been a chaplain for several decades, including for St. Vincent Hospital, Redham School, Maccabi Sports Organization, and the New South Wales Police Force. Rabbi Castell, hi. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I want to start with something you mentioned just uh, before off mic, which is that you had you started your chaplaincy work at the age of 12? Yes, yeah, so while I was a child in New York, is where I grew up, um, I had the opportunity, as many do in the Chabad tradition, to, as we're getting closer to Bar Mitzvah, and generally to encourage people to put on tefillin. Um, and already as a young boy of 12, I was... Um, going along to the local hospital, which was only a few blocks away from the school where I studied. And we would go at lunchtime to go and visit the patients there and give them the opportunity to put on tefillin or just to have a chat. This was something that you were doing along with other people in your school? Um, I think it was, you know, I I went with another friend. I think it was something that uh, I was keen on. I've had a keen interest in medicine and hospitals, obviously from a young age, mm-hmm. um, and have continued it all the way through my career till, uh, till the present day. And, and so that was situated in a childhood you grew up in New York, uh, within like the Crown Heights area? Yes, I grew up in Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, and there used to be a hospital, a Methodist hospital, um, which was just a couple of blocks away from the school that I went. Okay. So this is at about the age of 12, you first started visiting hospitals and having uh, one-on-one interactions with people there. How, how did that become a career in chaplaincy? So I continued um, after the next year, I was then involved in the uh, Brookdale Medical Center and that's a, a much larger hospital and started to coordinate for other students in the school to go and visit as well. Um, I then studied in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. where I was involved in setting up a chaplaincy program over a number of hospitals, over the University of Pittsburgh Hospital, uh, the Montefiore Hospital, the Allegheny Hospital, and McKee Hospital, a number of hospitals, and sort of got the community set up to have a hospital visitation committee. Um, I did that for a number of years. I then studied in London and again was involved in hospital visitation in London, then involved a bit with prison visitation in uh, in London and had the opportunity to then visit hospitals um, in, in London and later when I came to Sydney to continue that uh, tradition of hospital visitation and not just myself but to coordinate others to... Uh, be involved in hospital visitation, particularly around festivals. So when you were in Pittsburgh, that was after high school or during high school? So I was in Pittsburgh for high school. You were in Pittsburgh for high school? Yeah. And already you were arranging chaplaincy programs? Correct. And some of those programs are still running till today, which is uh, wow. you know, 35 years later. They should grow and be well. Yes. 
Um, is there is, is it are you able to like articulate what it was that drew you to that line of work at a young age? So growing up in a Chabad community, there's a general sense of uh, mission, a sense of going and doing good deeds and bringing uh, warmth and share to those who don't have it, either because of their um, lack of opportunity in education and Jewish tradition, or those who may be unwell in hospital, um, or you know those who don't have access to it in prison, or those who are on army bases, etc. So there is, you know, the general sort of mission that we that's ingrained in us um, as as kids and growing up in the um, surrounds with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and under his leadership, teaching us the importance of being able to reach out and help other people and do good in this world. At the time, uh, you were you would have seen the Rebbe during your childhood. More than once. So I did have the opportunity to, as mentioned, grow up in Crown Heights and therefore really be in the um, in the confines or within the community where the Rebbe was, where there would be regular talks by the Rebbe, there would be opportunities for us to go past the Rebbe on a, on a Sunday and get a blessing where he'd give out a dollar and encourage us to give money to charity, um, to be at Vabreng and to be at times with the, the Rebbe with Davin and really be part of it. And my father, who works for the Lubavitch Youth Organization, was also involved in a lot of the outreach programs. So I really had the opportunity to grow up very much in that, um, in the Rebbe's um, community, and also to be able to see the Rebbe's mission and outreach and sense of guidance and education um, very much through my father and directly with the Rebbe himself. Did you ever mention the work you were doing to the rubber directly at Dollars? So I would send what was called a duch, I'd send a report to the rubber for different things that I've done. And it's interesting that more recently, a lot of the photos from different um, events and things like that have gone on over the years that were sent to the rubber have now been made public on a website. And there's a number of um, photos that I've been involved, particular some of my work in Nepal, um, hmm. those pictures have gone up with some of my time here in Sydney. Um, so it, it's really um, quite interesting. You know, I've recently received a letter through my father that the hospital, the Brookdale Medical Hospital sent to Lubavitcher Rebbe to thank him for my services. Um, wow. So yeah, it's quite, quite interesting to sort of look back at a long career in chaplaincy and community outreach. I, I've noticed, it, just to stay on the subject for a moment, I've noticed that a lot of people uh, who, especially people within the Chabad organization who grew up in Crown Heights itself, had that uh, sense of, of constant mission and, and striving uh, sort of in the air from a young age. And I've, um, I've also uh, noticed that there was that phenomenon of reporting in on, on the works you're doing and just getting a, often getting like a very short reply, but one that just sort of indicated to you that you are heading in the right direction was very, uh, what would you say, was very helpful to a lot of people in their work, was very um, sustaining. Did you ever get like a, a short letter back for one of these dochs? A... So we get um, different brief notes, like uh, the Rebbe will take it to the graveside of his father-in-law um, and 
things like that. Other times there was, you know, encouragement to to grow in the in the work that we're doing. So very much there ever always encouraged us, you know, it's great what you've done, but go ahead and do more. Mm. You know, never let us sort of say, okay, great, uh, you've you've done your job. It was always very much, you know, you, you've started the journey. Let's keep let's keep building on it. Mm. And that that journey for you when you moved uh, abroad, right, was that was it more difficult for you to to keep that connection going, or was it the same for you? I think it continued because then I was working for people who took that mission of the Rebbe to go on Shlichus, to be sent to away from Crown Heights, to small communities elsewhere, to be able to continue to spread Yiddishkeit, to spread uh, the light of, of Judaism to smaller and other communities. So, for instance, when I went to Pittsburgh, I had the opportunity to work then under the late Rabbi Posner mm-hmm. and uh, Rabbi Kahas Weiss. And these are, you know, elder shluchim messengers from uh, from the Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe to those communities. And I was then had the opportunity to come and, and work under them or with them and and learn the ropes. You know, I had the opportunity to spend some time in Minnesota um, where we built um, sukkahs for, for people in the community or a time that I had in San Francisco to help the rabbi with the leading of the services for Rosh Hashanim Kippur, or Yom Kippur. Um, so really that opportunity to travel to different communities, see the commitment of these rabbis who've left their families, left their cushy uh, religious community to really start their own communities and to be able to give from what they've had the opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. Is there? It sounds like you had a lot of people around at the time that you could look up to and uh, sort of follow, if not in the footsteps of, then adjacent to. Is there someone who stands out to you from that period as a mentor? So I think there were a number of different people um, over the years, you know, whether it was a time that I used to go on the mitzvah tanks and remembering, you know, uh, somebody who sort of helped um, organize the mitzvah tanks and help, you know, set them up and get the um, signs and the brochures and sort all that through. So to um, more of a focus on chaplaincy and chaplaincy is interesting because it's not really that um, developed and it's interesting now more and more of this is actually um, being developed to be more organized in chaplaincy and and more coordinated approach as opposed to just some hospital visitation to actually become a more structured um, trained accountable kind of chaplaincy Mm -hmm. Well, I want to circle back around to the chaplaincy work, uh, obviously, but um, just just to follow that side route for a moment, uh, you mentioned the mitzvah tanks. Could you explain for those who aren't familiar what a mitzvah tank is? So the mitzvah tank was, uh, was a, a truck that would be uh, fitted out with a uh, table and chairs and uh, a bit of signage outside with brochures and the young um, young men would get on the truck and park in different parts of New York, in Manhattan, and we'd stop on a street corner and we'd invite people to come in 
put on to fill in or the women to um, have little um, candle holders for Shabbat and just to be able to learn more about Judaism and to grow in their Judaism. So it was, if you like, a bit of an outreach kind of uh, a situation where we'd stand on a street corner, ask people if they were Jewish, and then give them the opportunity to do a, a, a mitzvah, to do uh, one of the commandments, whether it was putting on tefillin or whether it was learning something or whether it was um, learning about the lighting of the candles or if it was a festival so that we'd be there with the, with the shofar in the month of El leading up to Rosh Hashanah or for Sukkot to have the Lulav and Esri. So it was very much um, an outreach, getting out there on the streets and just meeting Jewish people and giving them the opportunity to do something Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so you you were involved at a young age in the organization of these Mr. Tanks? So being that the Mitzvah Tanks is mainly organized through the Lubavitch Youth Organization where my father worked, um, it gave me an opportunity um, to volunteer. But I think just generally, you know, as students, we had the opportunity to sort of put our hand up and get involved in things. You know, there was what was called the Lagba Omer Parades, which was uh, very much a time that there was a huge educational parade for the 33rd day of the Omer, um, we had the opportunity to sort of get involved and build floats and build um, different educational pieces for that. Again, real opportunities for young people rather than just sit there as they do today on their phones and and watch the screens. Here was opportunity for us to get involved in in projects that um, hopefully benefit others. Right. It's it's interesting you, um, you mentioned like as opposed to young people today, that uh, you had all these opportunities because I um, I was talking to a friend who's not Chabad recently and he was saying that one of the um, great advantages that he saw in the people who did grow up in Chabad was that from a very young age they're encouraged to go out into unfamiliar circumstances and interact with people in a way that's like moving towards something good um, and that that seems to have, have uh, you know been maintained that seems to be something that even in today's smartphone ridden age we have um, a lot of, of young Chabadnik doing this sort of work. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I know my son goes out on a Friday and goes, goes to visit different offices in uh, Banda Junction and goes to put on to film with them or to share with them uh, a publication or something for Shabbos. So very much, you know, for a kid that's generally quite shy, there's an opportunity for him to get out and, and push his uh, comfort zone and mm-hmm. connect with people. Do you feel like that contributed in a big way towards your own, um, what would you say, I, I want to say organizational hustle. I don't know if that's a more proper way of putting it, like your ability to have a vision and then implement on that. Do you feel like that was was based a lot on that earlier foundations? It definitely contributes to that and your sense of, um, of wanting to make a difference, courage to make a difference, mm-hmm. um, definitely contributes to doing that, to being able to see the bigger picture and to say, okay, what can I do to make things better? Or what can I contribute? Or how can I mobilize um, people to be able to really make a difference? Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned uh, that chaplaincy, when you started, wasn't so developed, and now it's becoming more structured. Could you uh, explain a bit what that means? So there is more and more focus on you know providing more services with 
chaplaincy, there's more of a focus with regards to training um, the people that are doing the chaplaincy. There is also a focus on personal care to make sure that as a chaplain, you have the appropriate support. So if you're coming across difficult situations that you can debrief, um, there is, um, you know, last year, for instance, there was a lovely Seder pack that was put together by Chabad uh, call, which meant that you can have a personal Seder that you can give to a person in hospital. Um, there's a new course that they've developed, which is a um, an educational course about Judaism. So in the past, you know, we would do it on the fly. Here is a much more structured uh, course with slides and make sure you cover all the topics, etc. So all these things are, are very helpful, particularly as, you know, there are different views in relation to different religions as to end-of-life issues, as far as transplants, as far as transfusions, as far as a number of different um, things, particularly euthanasia and time of death, etc. You know, giving the chaplains the tools to then share that with the rest of their chaplaincy team mm -hmm. and more broadly with hospital staff and administration. And what, what was, to contrast that, what was it like when you started out? Um, well, we were part of a team, but we did the best we could with what we had, which wasn't much. Mm. So, you know, we would learn and put together our own um, things that we thought were important to be able to share with, with the other chaplains. Um, but uh, having it that much that being better structured, better laid out and not and thought through and so that we miss less and less things and we get the opportunity to get those messages across. Mm -hmm. Do you have somewhere you'd like to see chaplaincy as a, as a field going over the next 10, 20 years? Um, I think I think it's uh, very much developing as, as we speak. I think the collaboration between the different uh, religious denominations is also important so that there's a respect between chaplains and a sensitivity in relation to different um, religions and denominations. I mean, traditionally in many countries, chaplaincy has been very Christian-oriented. Mm -hmm. So having a strong... Jewish voice and values uh, infused in chaplaincy, I think, is a good thing. And we'll continue to see that grow in the coming years. When you say uh, that, when you talk about that interaction between uh, chaplains of different religious denominations, is, do you mean in the sense that uh, this, this is my turf and that's your turf and we stay on our respective areas or is there something more about conversation or collaboration? I think there's I think there's a number of things. There's obviously collaboration and um, working together in a team in relation to hospital administration, in relation to um, supporting each other's needs for particular um, religions. But there's a general sort of understanding that as chaplains we have a common mission to be able to provide spiritual guidance to um, to those that need it. And, you know, I'm reminded of a story at uh, St. Vincent's where I've worked for uh, 30 years. I go on uh, 
New Year's Eve, I'm usually there from midnight to about six in the morning. And one year there was a person who was dying from one of the Christ Christian denominations and they couldn't get hold of a chaplain at two o'clock in the morning. And this little finger sort of um, calls me over saying, you're religious, you'll do kind of thing. And so there is a sense that there is a commonality of purpose across chaplaincy, even to different religions, where they provide some sort of godly spiritual comfort. Do you say this little finger called me over? Well, this the, the, the person called me over using their little finger, sort of um, showing me to, to, you know, approach right. their family um, when their family member was dying. And, and then you were there and you ministered to this person? So then I was able to be there and say some psalms and some prayers. Obviously, I couldn't do their last rites, etc. But sure. at least I was able to provide them some spiritual comfort at the time. And the, the psalms, if I may ask, do you recite them in Hebrew, English, both? Was that was that a uh, a very different experience for you to a reg to what you might to a regular ministration? No, it's uh, you know on some level you know we're we're all made in the image of God and we're all you know part of God's God's people and um, God's creations and we uh, respect and provide comfort and guidance as needed. Mm -hmm. You must have um, ministered to many people in their final moments for 30 years, you said, at St. Vincent's? Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's something that I think for me and for a lot of people is very difficult to even imagine. Did you Do you feel like when you went into uh, that specific side of chaplaincy, like ministering to people in their, in their final moments, that you had like a perspective on it that's very different to your current perspective? I don't know. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we learn as part of our tradition as to um, how to approach the end of life and the prayers that are said, um, the value of um, and respect of, of a person, but also of the body. So even after the person's passed away. Um, so those are all part of what's our training, part of who we are. And then we try and bring that into our ministry when we go and actually see the people. And and then the actual moments, those final moments, are those... Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to word this right. There's a there's a, a moment where you're with the person in their, in their final moments, which is like, it feels like it might be a really, really big deal to that person. And is that is, does that keep being a big deal to you every time in the same way? Or does it become in some sense, like, ritualized or, or wrote? Listen, I, I think it's important to not get to a point where things become just, um, you know, just by rote or, or just customized to it and climatized to it. Yeah. I think it's important that if you're going to go in there with, with a person that you're actually there and present with them at the time. So each individual case, you're really there with them at the time. Maybe... When you walk away, you say, okay, that's another case. But when you're actually there with them, ministering and, and experiencing with them, it's as if you have no other experience because each experience is quite unique um, and important. You say each experience is quite unique and important. Do you see, you see trends uh, across people, like something common that a lot of people say? 
I think each one is each one is different. You know, a lot of people's personal experience and family and where they came from and and their traditions and level of observance and all those kinds of things. You know, makes each case unique. Mm-hmm. But is is there a moment? Is there a moment from your ministry that like really stands out to you emotionally? There are different. There are different times and different um, experiences with people that sort of, you know, um, you know, stand out at different times. You know, it's whether it's, you know, going to visit somebody in London at, at a hospital and he's decided to have a whole conversation with you about God, etc. And then as you finish, you ask him, when are you going home? And they says, please God, on Monday, you know, when he's trying to argue that he doesn't believe in God. So it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting space and uh, and many different um, many different experiences over the years um, that really you know touch you whether it's you know where you're sitting with a person who's in so much pain and difficulty and they're saying you know if they had enough energy they'd get on the roof and jump off the roof. Um, to then having conversation about them um, expressing how they feel to God, either by writing to God or calling out to God, etc., giving them the opportunity to sort of feel that they're not in free fall and they're not, um, and there's nowhere to turn, that there is somewhere to turn. There is a, a sense of tug of war with God, um, gives them a, a level of comfort even in, in the most difficult sort of times. So those sort of things really um, are quite interesting to see how people relate and how people connect to different kinds of uh, discussions, themes, um, guidance, etc. Mm. Well, what does that phrase mean, tug of war with God? To really... Um, Cry out to God and say, "I can't do this anymore." As much as you know, you might have your plans, and are we're encouraged to have faith that God has a, a bigger plan, and we might not understand it. But at the same time, we might be struggling, we might be um, suffering. You know, so it's about tugging with God and saying, "God, I don't understand this, and this is too hard for me. Please make it easier for me." Mm-hmm. It's interesting that um, that. Anecdote you just told about the guy in London, where you had this whole argument with him about the existence of God, and at the end you asked, "Where? Are you, when are you going home?" He says, "Please God, Monday." Um, it reminds me of this line. I think it was uh, Professor Sidney Morgan Bessel said on his. Um, I think it was on his deathbed. He was he was horribly ill, and he um, he uh, asked his what would you say, well wishes to people who come to see him. He said, why is it that you think um, God is punishing me so much? Is it because I don't believe in him? <laughs> is that something that comes up? I mean, I've, I've, uh, I'm trying to remember something that at the late Christopher Hitchens on the said, he, that the Jews have a strong gene for atheism. Do you feel like a lot of people like are pulling that stuff apart in their final moments? Um... Yeah, I think so. I think different people um, explore different things, 
particularly today where there's a lot more palliative care and there's a lot more sense of being told that you have a, a, a short time to live, etc. So where they really get to a stage that's a sort of trying to evaluate their life, their relationship with God, their relationship with their family and religion. Um, so it's, it's definitely quite interesting to explore some of that with people um, as, they, as they get to those final moments and as they get to a point where they're saying, you know, I don't have that much time. I want to be able to work through these things as opposed to a time where people are just trying to hang in there for as long as possible. So when you say more palliative care today, you mean it used to be that you were just in hospital most of the time, just trying to survive, and there was there wasn't so much a sense of oh well, you know, there's nothing more we can do to cure you, but we're going to try and make you comfortable for a while. I think so. I think I think um, you know I'm sure palliative care has been around for a long time, but I think the the sense of getting a better understanding and getting to a stage where people sort of say okay, I now want to. Um, evaluate and and somehow settle all the different aspects of my life. Mm-hmm. That that is a lot more modern in some sense. It seems to be it seems mm-hmm. to be more of a, a, a modern um, approach. Even though you know we have in Jewish tradition the concept that you should live every moment as if it's your last, um, but there, it's obviously very different when the doctor is sort of telling you that it is getting close and you. And your body starts to feel it and, uh, you know, it all sort of comes together in that way. Although some people uh, will not accept it and will continue to fight on all the way, you know, to the last breath. And it's our responsibility to support them whichever approach they want to take. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first started visiting in a hospi- hospice um, and I was quite young, I think I was... 14 at the time I was visiting in London and I and while I knew that I was visiting a hospice and what that was all about I walked out of a room with with a throwaway line in Yiddish which says which means be well and you can sort of hear a family member sort of saying under their breath you know that's not appropriate kind of thing so it's um it's quite an interesting space and part of our role as as chaplains is to be able to understand where people are at and be able to provide them guidance. I mean, chaplaincy is not about us coming in and um, proselytizing or missionizing to the people. It's about coming in and being there for them, for where they are and what, they, what they'd what like. And therefore, a lot of it is, is guided by the actual patient. So it's about listening to the, uh, the patient and being able to um, take a lead. You might throw uh, a line out and see whether they they pick up on it and want to continue on it. But really, our, our role is not to um, is not to uh, push patients into places that they're uncomfortable. It's not the appropriate place, mm-hmm. particularly as they're vulnerable. Do you have obviously like you have to support them in their their decision making about the way they want to approach this? But um, do you see that people like I, I would imagine that there are a couple of very different approaches that people have, and one is either acceptance or trying to get towards acceptance, and the other is um, there's this Dylan Thomas poem he's writing to his dying father called uh, "Do Not Go Gently Into That Good Night," uh, rage, rage against the dying of the light, 
and there, there are other people who are like, no, you want to fight it and you want to put all your energy into fighting it. And, and if you're not there, then you want to move towards that. Like, obviously, you, you're, it seems to like what, from what you're saying that if someone wants to, if someone is, picks like the acceptance route, then you support them in that and they pick the fighting route and you support them in that. Is that roughly I think that's correct? about right. I mean, even people who are uh, accepting the, the sense of that they're coming to the end of their days, etc., there's still a sense of, you know, it being easier for them that to be comfortable, um, a sense of prayer that they're looked after appropriately, etc. So, in either way, there is a sense of spirituality, a sense of hope, a sense of yearning that applies in in both both uh, instances. Mm. Do you find approaches. one or the other to be um, what would you say? to be more meaningful for the people involved? I think it depends on the individual, I don't think. And the, the hard thing is when there's sort of a bit of a, a tug of war between the person and their family, mm-hmm. you know, as to which approach to take. Mm-hmm. But either way, you know, we're there to be able to really focus on the patient and if need be to somehow help guide um, in between the, the, the family and the patient if they're coming from two different approaches to be able to help, you know, um, find the middle ground on. Mm-hmm. This thing you say about finding the middle ground, uh, that feeds into some of your work that you do uh, here at Jewish House. You, uh, among, aside from being the CEO and rabbi, you also do a lot of mediation work here? Yeah, so we were involved in providing um, a forum for people to be able to work through their differences. Mm-hmm. Um, through mediation, it's um, it's important to be able to identify what are the issues that are really key that are creating conflict, and then how can we actually address those issues? In particular, in cases where people really do want to get on and they just uh, are struggling with some points, and being able to work through those points to be able to get them to where they really want to be, which is to be able to get on, to be able to finalize a matter. Mm-hmm. Um, those are obviously the most successful outcomes and those are the ones that uh, we're sort of focused on. Mm-hmm. On, when, uh, on the subject of Jewish House, how is it that you came to be here? So uh, I was the second rabbi at the Great Synagogue for 14 years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, as that role was coming to, to an end, I was offered the opportunity to be able to uh, run Jewish House. I was involved in running a children's charity or a young people's charity called Point Zero, which had a van and quite a bit of outreach. So I've been uh, involved already in the um, outreach charity sort of space, although then more as a, as a founder and board member um, here I was to come in as a as a CEO and rabbi, be able to run it day to day as opposed to uh, be at, at the, on the board level. So it was a different kind of experience, but nonetheless something that I've worked with before, particularly through my work, as we said, in chaplaincy and then in the youth charity and on the board of Waverly Action for Youth Services. So um, it's not a new, it wasn't a completely new area, but definitely um, a different kind of role to what I was doing before. Mm-hmm. And what was the, the uh, Jewish house 
like when you came here and how has it changed in the past few years? Um, Jewish House is an organization that, that's now been around 35 years. So when I joined it 10 years or so ago, um, it was going through a transitional stage. There was a rabbi who was here for a number of years who um, has moved overseas um, and as an organization was struggling a bit. Um, and it was my role to then come in and see how do we take the organization and rebuild it and uh, make it quite successful. And in doing that, we identified what it is. So it was called Jewish House Crisis Center at the time. Mm-hmm. And we focused on the word crisis. What is a crisis? And how do people respond to a crisis? And then what can we do to help people that are struggling with the response to crisis? Um, in doing so, we identified that there is a particular kind of work that needs to be done around the crisis as opposed to more broadly welfare. You know, in the health system, you've got the emergency room mm-hmm. and very much Jewish House is sort of built as an emergency room kind of concept within the welfare space. And an emergency room is something that's very available. Emergency room is quite a range of supports um, available. You know, so in the emergency room, you can get anywhere from a specialist to a blood test to an MRI to all kinds of different things very quickly, which you wouldn't get in a hospital. Um, And quite intense kind of support. So a lot of it but short term. Mm -hmm. So it's not sustainable to provide that level of support long term. But if that level of support is provided early on for people in crisis, we believe we can reduce the longer term effects and hopefully have much better outcomes. So it's also important that we have very good partnerships with other organizations so that we can, you know, once we've worked through that acute state, we can have if they need to, can be well linked into longer term support organizations. Mm -hmm. So when you came here, if I'm understanding correctly, you said we want to do a a narrower scope, but more deep, deeper and more intense in a way that gets them through the crisis to the stage where we can then coordinate with other people for longer term stuff. Yes, that's correct. and And how has that been going so far? So it's going very well, and um, we've had a particular focus on homelessness, mm-hmm. and we've seen a significant growth in our homelessness programs. Um, you know, more recently, we, we we're in the process of opening fourteen rooms, which would then help um, you know many more people a year. Each bed, each room would help roughly about twenty five people a year. So there's significant growth as far as the number of people that we were able to help. Um, You know, we're doing quite a bit of work in mental health, drug and alcohol, family breakdown, domestic violence. So it's really um, having the approach. And it started from the idea that there's a number of crises that would need accommodation. So not just homelessness, there's sometimes family breakdown, sometimes you need respite, etc., um, so homelessness has sort of grown out significantly from from that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have, so we've got a team of social workers, we've got psychology, we've got pastoral care, we've got um, fam- the mediation that we talked about, advocacy, chaplaincy, hospital visitation. So there's quite a range of different activities that are involved in being able to provide that support for people during a crisis. Beautiful. 
And you have a crisis number here. Yes, so we have a crisis line, mm-hmm. um, which deals primarily with people in crisis. So again, it's not lifeline. Um, this is more specific as to, to a crisis. And for many people, just having the number in their pocket, even if they don't call, gives them some sort of sense of security that there is somewhere to call if they really need to. Okay. And uh, it, what what sort of situations would you say are, are a good situation for people to take that number out of their pocket and call? Clearly, if somebody's feeling um, suicidal mm-hmm. um, or overwhelmed um, or needing other kinds of supports, so whether it's um, homelessness or whether it's other um, difficulties that they might be experiencing, um, we have people to, there to try and provide that support and hopefully carry them over to a time when there's more services available. So if it happens after hours, to be able to provide them with enough guidance and support so that during the day we can provide them with more um, intense ongoing support. Mm-hmm. And, and what is that number for people to know? So it's uh, 1-300-JH-HELP-544-357. 1300 JH help. help. JH help. So um, that's uh, that's the number that people can call. And you're you're uh, based in Sydney, the organization, yeah? So we're based in Sydney's eastern suburbs, mm-hmm. and that's primarily where we focus, although we help people all over New South Wales and sometimes interstate as well and international. And your, through your own um, work here in mediation and in helping people out of tough times in their lives, have you uh, come across for yourself like some, some principles of therapeutic work that really work for you? I think our, our number one um, focus is on what we call trauma-informed care, um, which is very much around giving people the opportunity to rebuild and to get out of trauma and to feel better about themselves and feel like that people do care about them, people do value them, people that and they themselves should value themselves and feel that they uh, can do things to improve their situation. We might support them, but really what's going to help them most is them doing things for themselves. Like what sort of things? whether it's um, looking for accommodation or jobs or um, improving their their health, their fitness, their um, relationships, you know, all those sorts of things they can do, but they need to get out of that trauma state first mm-hmm. and then be encouraged and, and coached and provided with those, that, those supports to be able to do those things. When you, when you talk about getting out of the trauma state, is that... Is that what we would uh, traditionally consider as the sort of healing or release of trauma, or is it a more uh, narrow scope thing of just not being directly under the oppressive weight of the trauma in some sense? I think it's a little bit of all of that, but primarily it's it's around getting out of the um, space where you're really stuck and, and shocked by the mm-hmm. trauma so that you can slowly take that off your shoulders and start to uh, rise above it and, mm-hmm. and improve the situation. 
It's interesting you say what the phrase you used there was shocked. I was uh, because when you were describing it, the image that came to mind was, uh, or the phrase that came to mind was like traumatic shock. The idea that it's it's similar to other forms of shock, where it's just it's it's such a big thing all at once that some form of paralysis is is uh, at play. Correct. So what what is so trauma informed care then? If I'm understanding, it's like that procedure of removing that that working through that the paralysis that often happens immediately after trauma and into this into and um, what we say helping the person move into a state where they're able to start doing things for themselves and transitioning and you know so a person who might come here is quite traumatized you know you give them a day or two just to be able to rest and unwind Um, Mm -hmm. they come in you give them a nice room a nice bed you give them a you know hot soup um, food to eat you know they, they start to feel um, no longer in just survival mode, they're starting to now be able to function again as a human being. Mm-hmm. Therefore, once they start functioning again, then they're much better positioned to be able to help themselves, particularly with the extra support. Have you found that your work here and in chaplaincy sort of generalizes out from those particular uh, places and situations to general, uh, what would you say, the, generally the, the art of good living? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question that, uh, you know, being able to um, have a clearer mind and have the ability to be able to function at your highest and best levels um, can make you achieve more. and. That comes from looking after yourself. It comes from um, being aware of where things are for yourself, which then gives you the opportunity to be able to really perform at your best. Mm -hmm. Do you have um, a, uh, what would you say, advice for people who have, who who may have people in their lives who are going through trauma, who are going through trauma themselves? how they could take those first steps? I think what's important is to be able to recognize that if somebody's going through trauma, you need to give them um, some space and and support rather than try and push them to um, do things that they're not able to do, is to be able to give them the opportunity to be able to unwind some of that trauma and then recognize that by doing that, it'll give them the tools and the ability to be able to then um, start to grow and rebuild rather than just push, push, push. You know, once you get to a stage where you're frozen, the pushing is just not going to help. It's just going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. And in those sorts of situations, when you say giving space and support, what can that practically look like? Um, it could be practically, it can be an ear to listen, just give them an opportunity to, to be able to talk. It could be, um, you know, bringing them a meal. Um, it could be taking them out um, just to relax. So it, it could be in many different ways to sort of take them away from that frozen state to be able to feel value, to feel um, relaxed, to feel somehow um that they could feel something beyond their traumatized 
and stuck sort of stage. Mm-hmm. When you see people come in here and they're in a bad way, in one way or another, they're in a crisis, and, and you facilitate that that trauma informed care that those that first week or two of um, intervention, and then you sort of help them transition into something that's longer term. Is is there have you um developed a sort of sense of like what sort of people are more likely to take that and transform it in, in their lives and what what's what kind of people are more likely to find themselves in another crisis soon after? I don't know if there's a general rule. Each individual is different and depending on how many different aspects are there are at play. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's mental health issues at play, sometimes there's drug and alcohol issues at play. And sometimes there are family members or friends or not such good friends or legal issues, etc., that, uh, that play a role that make it harder for the person to be able to uh, move forward or hinder their development um, into uh, a better state. So, but you got to work with it. Mm-hmm. And is there anything that you found to be like surprisingly useful for people going through that process? I think spirituality is important. I think giving them an opportunity to connect with God, to be able to connect with who they are mm-hmm. um, and whatever spirituality they might have in their life, I think gives them uh, the opportunity to be able to say, you know what, it's not all my fault. I don't necessarily fully understand what's going on. There's much more to this. But at the same time, you know, there are good people around um, who are going to help me and I'm going to get through this. Mm-hmm. When you say give people uh, that opportunity to connect more with spirituality, um, I'm remembering what uh, you mentioned earlier about in people's final moments, how it's, it's a lot of it is about figuring out what, where they're coming from and supporting them in that. Is there a similar sort of principle at play here? 100%. So you might get somebody who'll, who's Jewish who'll say, you know, I'd like to put on tefillin. I haven't done this for many years and I think now is a good time. Or somebody from you know who from another religion who might want to go to church or to a mosque and say you know I mean it, it's a time for me to connect with God or connect to my tradition mm-hmm. uh, at a time like this. Um, or for somebody it might be to be able to meditate um, or to just go and sit by the ocean and and hear the waves. So. Again, yes, it depends on the individual and where they're at, but I think it's given them an opportunity to be able to explore that side of their life because sometimes they don't think of that mm-hmm. as, a, as, as an option, as something that could be helpful. But this, this is uh, interesting to me because I, I read a lot of psychology books over the last decade, decade and a half, and uh, there's one uh, by Roy Baumeister on uh, willpower where he like sets out his, his basic... Um, thesis about the interaction between glucose and willpower, which has gone through some troubles in like the recent um, psychology replication crisis. But then he like goes on and he talks about different different things that people have reported on as being useful for willpower, or useful for people achieving great things and putting their lives together. And towards the end of the book, he has this big section on religion. And he talks about like these, the overwhelming like anecdotal evidence among alcoholics that, oh, I found God and now I don't drink. Or something like that. Um, it's interesting that it's it's something that it seems like obviously there's something there, but at the same time, a lot of people in academia don't want to touch it because it seems like it could be 
um, either either volatile or, or controversial or like not properly for them? I think people struggle, um, particularly as you said, necathemia, you know, mm-hmm. where they like to be able to try and uh, put one on one together um, as opposed to religion, which is obviously much bigger and much greater and much more individualistic. Um, and therefore they find it difficult to be able to put into a box as they would like to do uh, in academia. Mm-hmm. Do you have a vision for how you would like a Jewish house to look like in five, ten years? Listen, I, I would like to be in a position where we really hit homelessness on the head in the state. Uh, I think in a country like Australia and the state of New South Wales, we should not be seeing homelessness the way we do. And I think we need to really look hard to see how do we knock it on the head for much more earlier intervention um, and prevention is key to be able to really make a difference. Obviously, affordable housing is is very important, um, but it's early intervention and prevention that is uh, key, particularly at this, point, this juncture to you know, while there is quite a bit of work being done to try and get people who are quite entrenched homeless, which is very difficult, um, we're seeing a significant increase in that cohort, in that population. And the only thing that we can recognize in that is that we're not jumping in early enough. I mean, mm-hmm. New York and London have put a specific focus on it. So in the case of New York, there's something called well, there's a concept that everybody's entitled to a bed. So if you become homeless, the city is responsible to make sure that you have a bed. In the case of London, there's a concept of no second night. So if somebody ends up on the street by the second night, they should be off the street. Um, so there, there is those sort of approaches. There is a general approach of a housing first, you know, rather than wait for people to be ready for housing, let's get them into a house and then put services around them so they can grow into it. So there's a number of different approaches around the world and clearly here in Australia and New South Wales in particular, there's a lot of work to do and hopefully we can achieve it. What does that mean, housing first? So that means that rather than putting people into temporary refuges and things like that while you give them living skills and teach them how to manage a house, the the greater thinking, particularly from Simbaris in America, is that get them into a house and then and provide them the supports there as opposed to, you know, making it hard for them to actually get to the point that they get a house. Um, because once you get them to a house, a lot of the um, stress and, and trauma in itself is already reduced. Mm-hmm. So I'm hearing about a lot about how these different places around the world are dealing with it in, in different ways. Um, London's in the second night, the housing first system. Is there uh, something that you've seen in your research or in your actual experience that you're like, yes, this is something really important that people are missing in their discussion of homelessness? Listen, I think, I think housing first is, um, is clearly, um, is clearly um, an approach that seems to be working around the world. It's about getting them into a house. The issue is, is that there just is not enough houses. And some places have um, subsidized houses to be able to make this 
um, particular kind of approach work and it's been quite successful in certain parts of the world. Um, we haven't quite seen it yet. We have a little bit of it here in Sydney, but we haven't seen it in a um, real scale in Sydney. And hopefully with time, as there's more and more of a push to be able to provide affordable housing, we'll see more of this as well. Mm -hmm. Great. If someone wants to help you out with your work here at Jewish House, either by volunteering or donating, how can they get in touch? They can give us a call on 9386-0770. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Robert Castell, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Aaron Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.